Around the time Gilgamesh was being written down, about 4,000 years ago, there lived a man, perhaps a shepherd, named Abram. Abram was born in Mesopotamia, near Ur, about 50 miles from the city of Uruk, but had traveled to Haran in Turkey when he was still a boy. When he was about 75 years old, Abram was directed by the Lord to move to the land of Canaan, now known as Israel, where the Lord would make his descendants a great nation. After a time in Canaan, there was a famine, and Abram moved his family to Egypt for a while. When he arrived, he was afraid because his wife was so beautiful. He told his wife, Sarai, to say that she was his sister, so no one would kill him and take her for their wife. He then accepted gifts of livestock and servants in exchange for his wife. She spent some time then as a concubine in the household of the pharaoh. Later, after his wife had been restored to him and following further adventures, Abram ended up back in Canaan in the kingdom of Abimelech. For a second time, Abram told the king that Sarai was really his sister and offered her to him. However, Abimelech found out about the ruse before he married Sarai and restored her to Abram as he had no desire to take part in Abram's abominations. Despite being a general all-around weasel and wife peddler, Abram was otherwise faithful to the Lord and did all that he was told. When he was 99 years old, he became Abraham. Even though he was of advanced age, God granted him his first child, Isaac, a year later. His wife was about 90 at the time. It was at this time she took the name Sarah. Isaac grew up and had several sons, among them Jacob. It turns out that Jacob was a chip off the old block. He followed his grandfather's ways of lies and deception. Isaac was going to give his blessing to his favorite son, Esau. But Jacob and his mother wanted it for Jacob instead. So Jacob tricked his father into thinking he was Esau and got his father's blessing. This seems to have worked out well as Jacob became wealthy and had many children. Jacob would have 12 sons of his own, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. Like his father, Jacob was not a father that loved his children equally. He loved his son Joseph best and showed great favoritism toward him. This favoritism included giving Joseph a special coat of many colors. He gave nothing so splendid to his other sons. All of this favoritism predictably led to great jealousy among Joseph's brothers. As a result, the brothers sold Joseph into slavery and then lied to their father Jacob about it. After years of both great fortune and great misfortune, Joseph ended up as the pharaoh's second-in-command. When a great famine later struck the Middle East, Joseph forgave his brothers and brought his family to Egypt to live under his protection. This all worked out great for Joseph's family, and many years went by and numerous generations of Jacob's descendants lived in Egypt. But many generations later, Jacob's descendants had increased exponentially. Eventually, a pharaoh who never knew Joseph came to power. He felt very differently about Jacob's descendants, now known as the Hebrews, and oppressed them sorely. It was up to Moses, another descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, collectively known as the Jewish patriarchs, to lead the Israelites out of Egypt into their promised land of Canaan. And what were Moses' qualifications as the leader of his people? Well, as a young man, 
He murdered an Egyptian and had to flee Egypt for 40 years. Welcome to Nero's Fiddle, Episode 6, The Power of History. Seriously? The greatest Hebrew patriarchs and leaders were liars, weasels, and murderers? Well, yes, but there's a lot of history I left out there in, in which many heroic acts were accomplished as well. My purpose here is twofold. First, I'm hoping to get you to read these histories. Read the first two books of the Bible, Genesis and Exodus. They're packed full of amazing history, and you'll get through them in a few nights of easy reading. Don't worry. All the boring stuff comes later. You don't get to all the rules and begats until Leviticus and Numbers. My second point is that these are not at all the stories that we find in martial cultures, such as Uruk, that were being written about the time Abraham lived. Here's a brief abridged description of Gilgamesh from that poem. When the gods created Gilgamesh, they gave him a perfect body. Shamash, the glorious sun, endowed him with beauty. Adad, the god of storm, endowed him with courage. The great gods made his beauty perfect, surpassing all others, terrifying like a great wild bull. And it goes on and on. These are not the kind of descriptions that we get of Hebrews in the Bible. Descriptions similar to Gilgamesh can be found in epic poetry of other such cultures, such as Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, Virgil's Aeneid, and the Anglo-Saxon poem Beowulf. These were great military cultures that conquered kingdoms and empires and valued soldierly values of strength, courage, and valor. The Hebrews were not such a martial culture. They had a brief period under King David where they extended their lands significantly, but soon lost much of this. Within 300 years of King David, they would lose half their kingdom. They would be conquered by the Babylonians. Later, the Romans would conquer them and kick them out of their land where they would not return for 2,000 years. With probably the exception of Joshua and maybe King David, this was never a great martial military people. They were instead one of those small, very interesting cultures that typically exists for several centuries, perhaps the better part of a millennium if they're lucky then is defeated by a local upstart militaristic king nearby and incorporated into his local empire. This is what happened to the kingdom of Israel. King Saul united all 12 tribes of Israel in 1020 BC. King David then took over and conquered his kingdom and ruled a united Israel about 1000 BC, about 1000 years after Abraham had been told by God that he would be the father of a mighty nation. David's kingdom was ruled by his son Solomon, who built the famous temple in Jerusalem. Shortly after, however, internal struggles split David's kingdom in two. Ten of Israel's tribes separated and became the northern kingdom of Israel. There is also the southern kingdom of Judah. There was also one other tribe, the tribe of Benjamin, that settled on the other side of the Jordan River. This was only about 70 years after David made Jerusalem the kingdom of Israel. The split between Israel and Judah was only about 70 years after David made Jerusalem the kingdom of Israel. The northern kingdom was conquered by the local kingdom of the Assyrians in 732 BC, and all of the Israelites living there, ten of Israel's twelve tribes, were sent into exile or assimilated into the Assyrian Empire and were lost to history from that point on. 
These are the famous lost tribes of Israel. All subsequent history we know of the Israelites is of the people who lived in the southern kingdom of Judah. Just two of the tribes then, Benjamin and Judah, survived past the Assyrian conquest of the kingdom of Israel. There were also some from the tribe of Levi, of which we'll speak more later. That's it. Only roughly one-fifth of a relatively small nation survived the Assyrian conquest. And here we are, a little shy of 3,000 years later, and the nation of Israel is firmly established with a population just a little south of 9 million. In addition, there's a huge worldwide Jewish diaspora with many Jewish leaders at the highest levels of business and government in countries all over the world. So how did the small remnant of the progeny of this motley collection of liars, misfits, and murderers end up playing such a major role in the world of the 21st century when virtually all small non-martial nations ended up conquered and assimilated into some aggressive larger empire? Okay, here's my confession. I cherry-picked the facts I gave you in the intro to point out the flaws of the patriarchs of Israel. There's a lot of heroic stuff in there as well, especially with Moses. He was truly a heroic character. I didn't do that to make them look bad. I did it to show how human they were. My point is not even that the Jewish heroes were human. Of course they were. My point is that, from their earliest written histories, the Jewish people portrayed their heroes as realistic people, warts and all. There are sometimes debates about whether these people were real historic figures or made-up stories. My vote is definitely for true historic figures. When people make up origin stories, they make up great historic figures like Hercules or Beowulf. They don't show what bozos they are in addition to showing their heroic acts. Jewish historical figures tend to be very human. King David, who comes across as a very heroic figure in the Bible, is also portrayed as an adulterer and a murderer. The ancient Hebrews had a passion for history that seemed to exceed that of other ancient peoples. Certainly other people wrote histories at this time, but the Hebrews wrote a lot more history than other groups. It's not just that they wrote these histories, but they referred to them constantly, taught them in their synagogues, and knew their history. National festivals such as Passover commemorated historical acts. I argue that this passion for their history has given the Jews a stronger sense of who they are as a people, and a stronger belief that they have a much larger historical purpose than other people. This passion can be seen in the Bible, but it's also obvious in extra-biblical sources as well. The Jewish historian Flavius Josephus, who wrote extensively on the history of the Hebrews, tells much of the story behind the stories of the Bible. For example, Abraham had learned astronomy in his travels among the Greeks and Chaldeans and taught this to the Egyptians who did not have this knowledge before Abraham. We all know that Moses went to the Pharaoh repeatedly and said, let my people go. A good question might be, how did he get to the ear of the Pharaoh? The Pharaoh was the divinely appointed leader of all Egypt. People couldn't simply walk up and talk to him. According to Josephus, when he was a young man, Abraham led a victorious campaign against the Ethiopians who were then invading Egypt, although this episode isn't in the Bible. Josephus is a good example of the highly literate upper class of Hebrew society. In a day before grammar schools, literacy was a very expensive commodity. It took a large investment of time to teach a child to read and write, 
yet there were scholars like Josephus and an entire literate class. We spoke earlier about the twelve sons of Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. These sons each went on to have large families of their own. Their children and their children's children continued to have large families. These then would become the twelve tribes. When they made it to the promised land of Canaan, all of these tribes but one were given their own land to live in and rule. One of these tribes, Levi, was appointed as the priestly class and lived among the other tribes to be their priests. Not only were all of these priests literate, but there was a class of lawyers, businessmen, tradesmen, and scholars who learned to read as well. The Hebrews then had a high percentage of literate citizens for an ancient civilization. This shows the value that the Hebrews placed on learning. The value can be seen in the breadth of genres of the books of the Bible. We've talked about the history in the first two books of the Bible, but there's so much more. There's, of course, the book of Joshua that picks up the narrative after Moses died and the Israelites have wandered for 40 years in the desert. I think unquestionably that the ancient Israelites were one of the most introspective, thoughtful, and bookish people on earth at the time. So what did enlightened ancient people do? Enter into some kind of negotiated settlement so that they could share the land equitably with the people who had settled there already? The answer can be found in such passages as Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 3. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Jergazites, Amorites, Canaanites, Pezerites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you, when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Yeah, I'm serious. This was one of the more enlightened nations around at the time. There's no question. We are still firmly entrenched in the in-group, out-group culture. This is a fundamental part of human nature and nobody was yet asking the question, should we stop hating and fearing outgroups? Certainly not the Hebrews, but we'll come back to this. But there's much more history in the Old Testament. The books of Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah all tell us about Jewish history in great detail. There are also the books of the Maccabees in the Jewish canon, as well as the Catholic and Eastern Orthodox Bibles but Maccabees is not found in Protestant Bibles. There are also books that tell us stories. The Book of Ruth tells us a tender story of a young woman living somewhere between the 6th and the 4th centuries BC. It should be noted that Ruth was a Moabite, not a Hebrew. She married a Jew, and the story is about how she is accepted into the Hebrew community. The Old Testament was written by many authors over perhaps 1,500 years. It's not all internally consistent, this is a story that shows the virtue of accepting foreigners into the Hebrew community and opens the door just a crack to breaking down the in-group, out-group dichotomy. The Book of Esther, meanwhile, tells us of a young Jewish woman who remained in Persia after most of the Israelites had returned to Jerusalem. It's a story of how she risked her life to save her people. Both books are relatively short and very much worth the read. Then there are books that set out the Hebraic law. We have a small degree of Mosaic law in Exodus, 
but the meat of the laws given by Moses are in the following book, Leviticus. There are also areas of law found in the books of Numbers and Deuteronomy. These laws covered both the big issues, do not kill, do not steal, do not commit adultery, etc. But their laws go far beyond this. A huge part of their laws cover religious observances. Some of this can be fairly obscure, such as whether or not to include yeast in your grain offerings to the Lord. But I find much of it interesting. Leviticus 13, for example, deals with infectious skin diseases when someone should be isolated so they don't infect others. There were also laws about other infections and about mildew. I'd be curious about how many of these would be considered medically accurate today, and things like declaring a woman unclean during her monthly cycle were certainly unfair to women. Yet these laws represented a far greater effort to maintain public health than anything I'm familiar with in other contemporary ancient societies. Then there were the laws governing the minutiae of everyday life. A hired man must be paid every day that he works. He can't be paid the following day. Don't plant different kinds of seeds in the same field. Don't wear clothing woven from two different kinds of material. Don't cut the hair at the sides of your head, etc. What one is struck with after reading all these laws is how much people's lives were governed by these laws, and the laws were clear. Things were black and white for the ancient Hebrews. The duties and responsibilities were prescribed, and there wasn't a lot of room for interpretation. Although interpret they did, but their interpretations were pretty much limited to creating ever finer laws for them to follow. If you spit on the Sabbath, it wasn't a sin. But if you spit so much that the dust formed a ball of mud that rolled, that was a sin. The bulk of Hebrew thought during this period was aimed at concrete lawmaking. Perhaps their thinking wasn't quite as black and white as the ancient Egyptians, but ancient Hebrew writing lacked a significant amount of abstract analysis. This lack of abstract thought was the norm in ancient societies until the Greeks would show their neighbors a wider world. I think one aspect of the Hebraic law, however, needs to be commented on. Their law in Leviticus 19.18, not to bear grudges and to love your neighbor as yourself, in a sense, is a theme commonly found in wisdom literature. But as far as I know, this is the only time that a command to love has been codified into a nation's laws. There are, of course, the books of the prophets. Some of them have positive things to pretend for the Jews. Like the famous prophecy of a Messiah in Isaiah 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful. Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. But I'd personally divide a huge part of their prophetic literature into pre- and post-exilic cautionary literature. Josephus tells us that a delegation was sent to Jerusalem from Babylonia. The Babylonians were received and the meeting went well. This was after Solomon had built the famous temple. The Jews were very proud of their temple and showed it off to the Babylonians, who were very impressed. There is a surprising amount of gold in the temple for such a small country. The Babylonians left, and the Jews had gained a rich and powerful ally. Or so they thought. The Babylonian delegation went home and reported the riches in the Jewish temple to their king, Nebuchadnezzar II. When he heard about them, King Nebuchadnezzar wanted the riches for himself. 
he laid siege to Jerusalem and sacked the temple, carrying off the gold and treasures there to Babylonia. At first, he left the Jews in Jerusalem and put them under Babylonian rule, but the Jews were stubborn. They didn't seem to have the desire to conquer other lands that many other people had, but they didn't take well to foreign rule. When they repeatedly refused to submit to Babylonian rule, the Babylonians returned to Israel and forced all upper-class Jewish men and women to march to Babylonia where they would be kept by the Babylonians. All of the priestly and ruling classes were then held under the Babylonian captivity and only the peasants and lower classes remained in the kingdom of Judah, with no effective rulers and their capital city of Jerusalem sacked and defenseless. The Babylonians, in turn, would be conquered by the Persian king Cyrus the Great. It was Cyrus the Great that allowed the Jews to return to Israel. They returned a greatly chastened people. My reading of the archaeology of the pre-exilic Jews is that there seems to have been a definite portion of the people that were devoutly religious, but that archaeological sites during this period show a mixing of Israeli religious artifacts with artifacts of Baal and other religions. However, there seems to have been much less mixing of other religions after the Babylonian captivity. The post-Babylonian captivity prophets were extreme in their warnings that the Jews had better reject all foreign gods and toe the line with Yahweh, or the Jews could expect even worse the next time. It wasn't just the prophets. The people as a whole seemed to have been chastened. Though obeying religious strictures was common throughout the ancient world, the Jews appear to have been particularly faithful in their religious practices following the Babylonian captivity. Also, it was after the Babylonian captivity that monotheism clearly became the norm among the Jews. In the early Bible texts, such as the Pentateuch, which are the first five books of the Bible, Yahweh is recognized as the God of the Hebrews, but other gods, at least implicitly, are recognized. After the Babylonian captivity, Yahweh becomes the only God. There's also much great poetry in the Old Testament. The Psalms, of course, have been the go-to for many for comfort and solace for two millennia. There's Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. And Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaves does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. And of course, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And 147 others. One can get lost for a long time in the Psalms. Then there's a most amazing book, Song of Songs, sometimes called Song of Solomon. It's amazing because the entire book does not mention God once. An entire book of the Bible that doesn't even allude to God? Priests and pastors have tied themselves in knots for two millennia about this one. The entire book is love poetry, 
a dialogue between two lovers. Our priestly class ultimately settled on the interpretation that it's an allegory of Jesus' love for his church. This is the danger of going to church. Your pastors want you to believe what they want you to believe. If you read the Bible and come up with a common sense interpretation, that could be heretical. But the Song of Songs simply means what it means. Old Testament Jews put a high value on love and weren't afraid to say it. This will be common in the Romantic period in Europe in the 18th century, but quite unusual among ancient peoples. The Jewish people were far ahead of their time in this. Song of Songs is full of amazingly sweet and tender love poetry, showing us how vital and romantic love is to the human condition. It's short, only eight chapters. Read it. Then there are the Books of Wisdom. There are the Proverbs, of course. Finally, there's Ecclesiastes, which opens telling us, Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What does a man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. It's not at all what you'd expect from the Bible, but well worth the read. It's short, only 12 chapters. Read it. The ancient Hebrews were never more than a small nation as nations went at the time. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, they were surrounded by far larger empires and seemed destined to be swallowed up in one of their larger neighboring expansionist empires, as most small peoples were back then, eventually to be a small footnote in Mediterranean history. And conquered and assimilated most of the twelve tribes were. History leaves us no trace of the ten lost tribes after they were conquered by the Assyrians. What we had left then was the rump of one of the smaller states in the area, a state that was particularly observant in its religious practices and paid much stronger attention to its history than contemporary states in the Mediterranean region. This is why I've entitled this episode, The Power of History. The Jews have always placed a very high value on knowing and passing on their history. Theirs was not a history of great heroes. They certainly had very heroic figures in their history, but their heroes as with all of their historical figures, were men and women of flesh and blood. They were portrayed as modern historians portray people, full of both flaws and strengths. It was 70 AD when Rome captured Jerusalem and expelled the Jews from Israel for refusing to follow Roman law. From then until May 14, 1948, when modern Israel was founded, the Jews settled in many, mostly Western nations. Throughout that almost 2,000 years, they never had a homeland and never lost a sense of their identity. As far as I know, they're the only nation in the history of the world that has come close to doing that. I argue that it's their strong sense of identity, a sense that has been fostered through a devotion to their religion and a sense of who they are, based on their strong emphasis in their historical place in the world, that has allowed them to remain united as one people. And they have done this even though they have endured the largest and longest diaspora of any people. Remember what we're doing in this podcast. We're watching as the human race slowly finds its humanity. At one point in the hunter-gatherer stage, cannibalism was a fine practice for some people. Following the development of agriculture, that would be considered completely barbaric. Then, following agriculture and the rise of a priestly class, Human sacrifice was de rigueur in many cultures. 
Even the Egyptians at about this time were still sacrificing some slaves and burying them along with their pharaohs to accompany their pharaohs into the afterlife. The Jewish civilization had evolved past this and would have considered sacrificing humans, though not animals, as barbaric as well. As far as I know, the Babylonians would have too. But conquering a neighboring country in order to haul off its booty to enrich yourself? This was accepted as one of the realities of life at the time. A good reality if you're a powerful country, an unfortunate reality if you're a small kingdom, but reality nevertheless. In King Nebuchadnezzar, the Jews had a neighbor with a strong martial spirit, a big desire to be the alpha king in his neighborhood, and a strong, acquisitive drive. When you see a leader like that with a strong military and a weaker neighboring people with potential valuable booty that can be acquired, the weaker state will often be the unfortunate victim of the stronger kingdom's acquisitive drive. Such was the case with Babylonia and Israel. Historical reality has always been seen as reality. People always assume that it will never change. Until the English outlawed slavery in the 19th century, slavery had always existed. People assumed that it would always exist, and in general didn't look forward to the day when men and women would all exist in a world without slavery. We exist in the world that we live in and assume it will never change, because we have never seen that change happen. Major societal change does happen, though, and it has happened throughout history. It happened so slowly that many people have lived their entire lives without witnessing it. We've just taken one of our whirlwind tours of about 4,000 years of Jewish history, down to almost the time of Jesus. This people, as every group that we will visit along our way, has developed their own unique culture. This one, more than most, was quite bookish and intellectual. With few exceptions, like Joshua and King David, they didn't seem to have much of an interest in conquering foreign kingdoms. They wanted more to be left alone to their families and communities. The Hebrews lived very happily in their separate tribes and were governed by their own chiefs or judges, as they called them, for about 200 years, from the time they conquered much of Canaan until their first king, King Saul, was anointed. Then they only lived under a united monarchy for a little over a hundred years before they split into the northern and southern kingdoms. We can understand why the Romans had such an effect on the era of history that leads us to today. They dominated most of the civilization of the West for a thousand years. One could argue that this small Jewish kingdom that couldn't stay together for much more than a hundred years, that survived only as a rump state of its former size, has had a much greater effect on us, at least culturally, than Rome. That's a fight I won't join. They both left different impacts on us. My point is that their lasting effect is huge and far beyond what one would expect from such a small people. It's been my argument this week that the Jewish people's sense of their history has helped them significantly in this journey. Perhaps it's a very good reason we should understand our own journey through history. Your reading this week is the Old Testament. Not all of it, but at least read the following. It's not too much, and you can get through it in a reasonable time. Genesis, Exodus, Ruth, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs. And whatever you do, make sure you read Job. Enjoy. See you next week.